How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 78. Ooh, very clean. Thank I, you. I like the way you delivered that. Yeah, I just wanted to put a bit of suspense in there. I got, I got it. I I'm s- not trying to draw out the episode because we've got a really light, uh, light episode <laughs> outside of the film of the week. Yeah. Although, who knows? We could have a really. We don't know where that conversation will take us. So. Very true. We don't know what's been going on, really. Not really. No, it's been a uh, lives. a humdinger of a week, Jake. <laughs> no. I said to you off the air. Uh, I'm going to start coining that. <laughs> Uh, when you have a 2020, it means you're having a shit time. Yeah. I th- I don't think that's going to take too long to catch on. Yes. I think most people are going to know what that means <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't, I wonder if there's anyone out there who's like, well, you know, personally, I've had a pretty great 2020, you know. <laughs> Probably my brother, actually. Oh, really? He got into the, he got into the fire service. Oh, uh, yeah, that's it's true. a rare exception to the rule, Jake. It's funny you mention that because my brother just got engaged. So he's 2020 is a bit more average than most, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would. it's fair to say that uh, maybe our siblings are just faring a little better than we are. But oh. Jake, oh. that being said, <laughs> we did have a good week in terms of uh, movies. We may have been... a quiet one. I mean, it was a sparse one for me too, which yeah. thankfully I have a little bit of a buffer between the current day number and uh, how many films I've oh, watched like this year. trying to fit in. Well, that's the thing. 2020, you've got to fit in 366 films. This year. Uh yes, I, I don't sure. know. I don't know if I'm gonna make my quota. Um, I'm at two o, two o one, no, two o two o three. I'm in the one seventies mark. I know that. Well, it's a little problematic because the only thing I've watched outside of the film of the week was a show. Okay, so that doesn't count, no, unfortunately. That's, but that's that's all right. What was the show? <laughs> so it took me all week. I haven't even finished it. It's only ten episodes this season. I haven't even finished it because it took all it took all week for me to 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 bust the gut enough to actually dive into this final fourth season of Thirteen Reasons Why. Oh god! Which I'm now seven episodes in, or I've seen seven episodes out of the ten. So I'm actually really close. I've only got three episodes after the whole series. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel like it. Like what's happening in the story? It's like. It does feel like it's building to like the end of the whole series. It's sort of just. It just yeah, it's just things are happening and it's stumbling and bumbling along. Yeah, along. Look, look, I'll start off with the one positive I can kind of muster from this Good season. God, you can only muster one. Yeah, really. Like even like even the cinematography, it's, it's just gone downhill. Like it doesn't look as good as it used to, which is one of its only other pros, I would say. All the character decisions are just like so nonsensical. It's almost laughable, and I'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Because this is a little unfair. If someone wants to go onto our show and be like, oh, I want to listen to their Shirley review. I'm aware a certain they're... character does die in this season. I've been spoiled a certain character dying as well, which hasn't happened yet where I'm up to, but I know it's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really dumb because it's one of the only characters I was like, oh, I kind of still like him, which is very rare now. Like Even Clay is like so horrible this season. It's like, how in the world can anyone root for this character anymore? Well, He's such would, a terrible say, person. Yeah, especially, <laughs> although I only I finally tapped out season three, like ep three, it became yeah. very apparent that he was taking more a back seat. He was not so right. much the the character of uh, the character of action in a way. Well, he's the character we put ourselves into basically. As yeah. particularly in the first season, he's it's a huge huge framing device. His journey, 
Um, well, exactly. We're, we're looking at it through the lens of his eyes, which in a way sort of makes almost all the other characters unlikable because we're looking at them through the eyes of Clay and Hannah, who have reasons to really dislike all of these other characters. Yeah, absolutely. And then by the time we get to this fourth season where Clay is so unlikable, like they're trying to show that he has a bit of PTSD and he's really struggling with all the stuff that's happened and they, they, they show it. It's almost like comically bad because they want to do these like nightmarish vision moments where he sees himself in the mirror he's got that, that joker-esque smile and it's like this is just so corny and creepy like it just doesn't work but like they're right because of that they've almost got no characters left to even like well i mean anymore. it comes it comes back to obviously at the, the end of last season you know you find mm. out who killed bryce yeah and obviously the frame i'm not gonna like we said we'll avoid talking about yep. season four spoilers but season three is fair game it's been a while now yeah. um i think we've even talked about it on the show um, I think our it chapter two is when me and Jack talk about. Obviously, you're there too, but me and Jack finished the season. Yes, I mean that was the episode where we talked about spoilers for season three. Yeah, so it, I mean it's fair to say that um, obviously with the they frame Monty as you guys brought up on the show, mm-hmm. um, they really took away a lot of the central hatred characters in the last season. So they probably had to yeah. frame kind of new people to fill the shoes and sort of rationalize it. It's a myth. It's a show that was so up its own ass when it first came out <laughs> that um, honestly now the fact that it's been reduced to this, even I would say bottom of the barrel Degrassi it's high. A, it's a soap opera. It makes, it makes Degrassi high look like a million bucks, <laughs> you know, and, and, because at least Degrassi High wasn't afraid to shy away from its Socratic sort of framing device, you know. And I, I just think it's it's just capitalizes on edge melodrama. That's mm. pretty much what it was. And frankly, I think it's exploitative. And it says I thought it went too far by season two, let alone by season four. So some I, of the stuff they showed, yeah, in those first two seasons was disgusting. Yeah, like I'm I'm usually very much about preserva- preservating film and stuff, but like I'm I very rarely I'm a huge fan of the stuff they cut from season one, like the actual suicide mm-hmm. scene. Like it's just gone. You can't watch it now, at least on its original Netflix sort mm-hmm. of streaming. And I'm I'm very rarely pro on those t- types of decisions. I'm like, yeah, because you shouldn't show that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the, I mean, you should never show something like that because if you think about it, the whole premise of the show is automatically uh, sort of setting the wrong precedent. You know, mm. it's talking about this this you know young woman who's been you know treated so poorly for so long, and she and and her suicide is is centered around this almost revenge plot, and it almost, it, I mean, it does come back to. It's trying to romanticize. It's not trying mm. to start a conversation. It's trying to romanticize a horrible thing that happens to young people that yeah. feel isolated. And it's trying to romanticize it in some weird V for Vendetta framing. Where and I, I just could never move past that. And of course, yeah, you, you're right about saying some of the strongest parts of the shows are more their technical aspects rather than their their story or writing. But and if, if the show loses that element, I don't know what legs it's got left to stand on. Yeah, I was curious about that because I did look up like the cinematographers and the first like camera systems and stuff. It didn't. It doesn't seem like they went through much of a change between seasons. So I really don't know why. I just don't. Maybe like, they lacked on it. Maybe they checked out. Maybe I don't know. Like, I, there's a lot of stuff like out in exteriors. It's just like the lighting just looks really harsh and 
like it looks like they lost control of it i guess i don't know you're right it's more of a technical showcase for netflix and the types of cameras they're using is like more than the actual story yeah because the writing is just like it i'm i'm watching it losing it laughing this fourth season because of how ridiculous so many decisions i mean clay is a straight-up criminal at this point and he just gets away with it yeah like like i don't want to get into too much no, specifics I, but i think it's, it's, it's good insane. To, yeah. to at least address acknowledge that the show is long past its uh, dismissal date. And well, it was, it was based on a book. It should have ended at season one when the book yeah. ended. And, yeah. and it's a shame that uh, they kept coming back to it more. And then, you know, the fact that this gets a, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, things like Bojack where it's like mm. they didn't give Bojack the time it needs, but they're willing to give this show three more seasons than what it deserves, you know? Yeah. What if you, you know, it's like, and I know Netflix aren't watching or lording over all of these shows, but the fact of the matter is that money could be going into even other shows that honestly still have more steam. I mean, I've watched the first three seasons of Glow. I think it's got more steam to right. go in it. And uh, I didn't like this, the last season as much, but it wasn't nearly on the same level of dismissal that I had with angsty crap from uh you know yeah 30 I think, reasons why i think the problem just with netflix is like if if people are binging the show as it comes out that's what talks to them and it's interesting timing that this is the last season because this is the first season admittedly that i i spent weeks not avoiding it just took me weeks to be like okay fine to I'll find the motivation it. exactly like even the third season as much as i was talking crap about it i watched it the day it came out you know it was like there's something weirdly fixating about going and watching the show and Mm-hmm. talking about how terribly it's written and really some of the writing is like atrocious um again the decisions that are made by these characters and like how unlikable they are but there was something weirdly i won't say addicting but engrossing about watching the show like that and I, I, that is it is a soap opera soap operas are not usually written all that well but people are drawn to them every day yeah so. okay but, yeah. but at least but most of the time predominantly soap operas um, you know the traditional soap operas—they're they're harmless though. They—they're very they're, much yes, self-aware, yes. and they're not trying to—they're not targeting a demographic that these people are trying to play. That's a very um, good point. Yeah. You know, soap operas are targeting—you know—well, originally, you know, housewives, people, stay-at-home mm. parents, predominantly, you know, women of the thirty-five to sixty-year-old mm. demographic, and. They very much do nothing more than offer sort of a popcorn brain dead entertainment in the the graveyard shift of the day. Whereas this show has constantly marketed itself as this important discussion to be had. Yeah, where it's not a brutally honest portrayal of high school. I've read reviews that say that. I'm like, it's not. It's just no. it. You're right. It's so trivial, and it the fact that it presents itself as this important thing to discuss is like well then stop making these ridiculous plots like i will give it the third and fourth season are quote-unquote harmless in comparison to what it used to do in terms of its discussion about rape and suicide culture it's died down on those elements a little bit well but it's still be- disgusting though yeah but it's it's yeah, it's not honestly it, it needs to uh be forgotten about and honestly the day that show ends will be the day the discussions of that show mm. stop because I feel like the longer a show like that exists and hopefully we never see another show like it ever again. Well, I've literally seen no one talk about this fourth season. Like, That's good. I have not seen Yeah, which is, you know, it, I mean, 
even the I was watching the sixth episode, which there's this element of school shooting in it, and it's it's terribly done. It's like it's so unrealistic how that episode plays out in terms of dramatizing yeah. this idea of school shooting with drills and stuff. But it's like that's absolutely not how those procedures would go, and. It's like, I kind of have to look... I want to look for those cool discussions. hearing something about this. Jack was telling us... So this is one of the two things I had spoiled, was this idea of there's like a school shooting drill. But the way it goes about... is overly realistic. It's like so... Yeah, it's so... Like, the school basically... And this isn't what literally happened, but it might as well happen. The school basically paid these professionals to come in and create a panic room scenario that's like ultra-realistic. It's like... Usually, they would tell you if it was a drill. Well, yeah, because they need psycho- to tell you it's a cause drill. Because it, uh, <laughs> it would psychologically affect young lives. Yeah, and guess what happens in the episode? There is a psychological reaction in several students, uh, and it leads to a very dramatic event with Clay at the end of the episode. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's bonkers to me, but. See, that, you're right, that's the start. I, I did promise to start with the positive, so I'll just, I'm going to end it on the positive. Is Again, this is only 10 episodes long, it's not 13. And I know it sounds a bit like a joke or it's shorter, but it's like it's a good thing it's shorter because those first three seasons are ridiculously long. And the reason they're long is because they have to abide to this structure of season one, a tape for each character for each episode. Mm-hmm. Season two, each person who steps up to trial is an entire episode. And it just drags because they feel like it needs to be 13 episodes long. And it, this one doesn't drag as much. It feels like more actually happens on an episode to episode basis. So that's a plus. That's one plus. That there's less of this to see. <laughs> well, it's just the storytelling's a little more succinct. Even if it's really, really, really silly. Yeah, fair enough. But um, that's it. That's all I've sadly watched well, last week. <laughs> in contrast, I have also... Well, it's probably more similarly rather than contrast. Mm. Uh, I've only caught two other feature-length, I'm, I guess, films. One was a stand-up special and one right. was a film. Other than the film of the week... Uh, I caught the change up, which I hadn't seen. <laughs> Strange choice, yeah. Um, I like it. Oh, just my typical dumb slapstick comedy of the week. Um, Did you enjoy it though? Uh I didn't hate it as much as other. Um, oh, really? Slaps- I mean, I, it's hard to not even see the natural charisma that both Jason, Jason Bateman, Bateman Ryan Reynolds. and Ryan Reynolds yeah. have, um, even when they're given some of the worse material um <laughs> but yeah I, I had occasional chuckles rare and fleeting chuckles but um i think i gave it a two i think i gave it a two star or something like that yeah i've got your letterbox open because i've i have seen this film years and years and years ago when i was a kid and yeah you gave it two stars uh compared to the letterbox average which is 2.5 yes. so uh you're probably sitting around roughly where the yeah, Letterbox community it's sort of where it feels. I mean, it feels like one of those films that they just made because they needed some money and they had nothing else to do. Yeah, the the most prominent thing I remember about this film is in the poster you have Ryan Reynolds with the two girls on his arms. I remember taking a friend. This is like we were both like thirteen at this point. They had that big blown out poster at the theater, mm-hmm. and me and my friend Christian were like posed as Ryan Reynolds. So we, we took photos to make it look like the two girls want our arms. Ah, <laughs> that's and, good. Uh, that's about the time of my life when I watched the change-up. So uh, that's fair enough. Typical 13-year-olds. Yeah. And Olivia Wilde's pretty... She's very attractive in that film. She's also pretty good. Okay, you know? cool. I think she's fine. I mean, yeah. I, I was... She's my least favorite part of her, so... Whoa. Um, but I mean, to be fair, that's a high standard. Yes. It's a very high standard, so... Yeah. Okay. I can if you, get behind yeah. you. 
Yeah. So, and then the other thing I caught was the new Jim Jeffries, uh, Netflix mm. special Intolerant. Um, we're both pretty good fans of Jim Jeffries. We're probably more Bill Burr guys. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think I've actually sat down and watched any of his, like a full hour of his stand up. So I'll say you're probably a bigger fan than me, but. Yeah, but yeah, I'd say fun. we're both way more Bill Burr people. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I used to like Jim Jeffries when I was a lot younger, like not a lot younger, like 15, 16. Mm. Um, cause he sort of had that, cause he's Australian, you know, he's got that sort of Australian, uh, harsh comedy. Yeah. But, uh, in latter years, I think he's sort of fluctuated. Um, I think he's had seven or eight specials. Now I think this was the second worst off the top of my head. Mm. Um, still good. Had bits that were funny. Yeah. Um, it's sort of how I feel about, um, you know, I, I mean, it's tough. I mean, when you've had seven or eight specials, some are going to be better than others. And It's hard to rank because it just depends on the comedy and the time of absolutely. Like, the year that they record. And in. he talks about that and he has some really good, uh, he's one of those few comedians that's not afraid to be like, you guys need to just pull your heads in about this self-aware comedy stuff. Cause, mm. um, and he openly speaks out about how... Um, just because you watch a stand-up special from 2007 where I say something that would have been socially acceptable back then but isn't now yeah, does not make me that, like, like that wrong. That's... Comedy is context. Context is based yeah. on time. And... Even some YouTube videos... I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos with content from, like, 2009, 2010. Even just, like, some of the words used is, like, well, there's a big no-nos now, especially in the online mm-hmm. sort of... I don't want to say overly sensitive because we shouldn't be using those words anyway, but where consequences it's are politically correct very, yeah exactly the, the consequences are very much present in the in the world of the internet today so it's good that he's upfront about it my question yeah. though when was this recorded this stand-up well it's a 2020 special so i'm assuming it would have been recorded mid to late last year I'd assume. Ah, okay so there's definitely no like covid jokes or anything like that no nothing like that uh, we'll get him soon i bet um yeah when stand-up starts to return back to mm. normal capacities for sure um, yeah, so I still felt seldom okay with it, but, um, yeah, and it had moments that I laughed, but I think personally, uh, Jeffries's best special was probably either, um, Alcoholocaust, which is one of his, oh, yeah. and, um, probably Bear, his first Netflix one, right. when he moved over from just DVDs to Netflix. Which is the one that he's Bear. most famous for. That's the one with the gun control and oh, Oscar yeah, stories. Yeah, everyone's seen that. Um, that's so that's funny. definitely probably the best one I've seen him do. Because it's right. a good... No more guns. Yes. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I've caught this week. It's been a light week. Yeah, it's been a light week for both of us. But that's okay, because yes. it gives us uh, more time to talk about the film of the week. Exactly. Do you have anything you add, add in career section before uh, moving forward? I'll, I'll make a couple of mentions. Before I even talk about that, Ooh. I want to say, because I didn't have time to talk about it last Monday. I should have, because we recorded kind of later than usual last Monday. So we knew, it, or at least I knew about this, but I want to give it a bit of a shout out now. Okay. So last Monday, uh, Ennio Morricone, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, mm. 20, uh, 91-year-old composer who mm. worked with Sergio Leone, has made some classic tunes, and most recently worked on the Hateful Eight score, passed away last Monday at 91. So... Uh, that what a life. Our, uh, sincere condolences. Yeah. Um, I, we found out about this last Monday. I didn't have time to slip it in. So. No, well, that's okay. And unfortunately, uh, 
you know, in in light of that news, we also mm. found out just before recording oh, you're right, yeah. that uh, Kelly Preston has passed away of breast cancer. Um, and in her fifties, correct? Fifty-seven. Um, and she's uh, John Travolta's uh, wife, mm. and is apparently uh, well was most known for her movies in Twins, Mischief, The Cat in the Hat. Jerry was she Ma- the mother in Cat in the Hat? I think she was. <laughs> and Sky High? Sky High. I love Sky High. So, um, yeah, that, uh, well, some That's zero condolences. Um, so, yeah. real 2020 this 2020. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's been a very 2020 week indeed. Man, it's every Monday now, because that was last Monday and this Monday. Yes. It's a bit of a shame. Oh, it is well. a shame, but uh, yeah. it is time for us to move into our film of the week. Ooh, but, Jake, exciting. what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching Shirley. To our suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that one. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we can find a place. Shirley has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. I read your story. What are you doing in here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. A famous horror writer finds inspiration for her next book after she and her husband take in a young couple. Sick. This film was uh, directed by Josephine Decker. That's the one. uh, Did it win? Yes, it did win. It won at Sundance. Well, it won for the U.S. Dramatic Special Jury Award for uh, auteur filmmaking, which I could totally see. So she won the award herself, personally, which is very cool. Yes, because she produced it. Well, well, it was a directing award. Oh, it was a directing one. So it was auteur filmmaking. Okay, cool. There you go. She won that. Of course, it's based on the novel by Susan Scarf Merrill from 2014. And um, so this is interesting, Zeke. I think we both walked into this film pretty unaware of how much is real, what's based on reality, what was fictional. We sort of read the uh, logline and went in. Yeah, that was pretty much it. Um, and by reading the logline, at least the one we read last week yep. and even this week, um, we sort of thought it would be a horror, obviously given Elizabeth Moss as the lead. Mm. Well, um, even the, the trailer, like the music and the soundtrack. The yeah, way. there's a certain menace to it. Um mm. Uh, I think, and very early on, it got clear that uh, it was giving us real Get Out vibes. Um, Very Jordan Peele-esque, yeah. Yeah. um, I don't think it went the same direction as, obviously, Get Out and Us. But, Mm. um, yeah, that was definitely the original impression. Uh, We didn't know it was based on true events until... Well, during and then probably shortly after is where we really... I'll tell you shortly. I think there was a point when, when they started name-dropping stuff in the film. I was like, oh, I guess this is like a real writer. Yeah. Especially because you mentioned that you've read The Lottery. Yes. Which, which is a is... big part of this film. Yes, the short story, uh, which the, um, you know, it's sort of the point that uh, made uh, Shirley Jackson famous in the, yeah, it in was the literary very... community. Very early on. I think, the, yeah, it was the one that came up in, I think, the New York Times. And you're right, it was huge. And I think they got, like, a record number of letters written in about it. A lot of people thought it was real or a story based on real life. Um, so I think that's where it hit for you that this was real. One of the other things she worked on, I'm talking about Shirley Jackson, the writer, was The Haunting of Hill House, which, of course, is now something you can watch as, I think, a mini series on Netflix. Mm. So that's been adapted. And, of course, a novel 
about her has been adapted. And of course, this film's a bit about Stanley Hyman as well, her husband. Now, this is something I only found out this morning because obviously we talk, we, in the logline, we tease that it's a story about, it's about them too, but it's also about a young couple that come in and it sort of inspires Shirley's next novel. Mm-hmm. That part is fictitious. So I've learned this young couple didn't exist or they didn't move into the house. So this stuff, even though the novel that she eventually writes, I think I've got the name here. Hangman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was... See, I got Hangs a Man. I don't know if it was spelt wrong or that's actually what it's... That might actually be it. I mean, we didn't have subtitles or anything in there. No, it says Hang and then S-A and then Man. So Hangs a Man. You might be right. It might just be Hangs Man. I don't don't, don't know if it was a misspelling misspelling on Google or whatever, but yeah, that's that's the one that she's actively working on. And and so that's when I thought it was a bit interesting as someone who's obviously... No, it is Hangs a Man. Oh, perfect. There you go. That's a strange title. Yeah, well, this was a strange movie. <laughs> um, well, I guess that brings us to the... We made joke last week about Elizabeth Moss, and we were very disappointed by The Invisible Man earlier mm-hmm. this year. And we see we, if, she, if she could redeem herself, especially since she produced this film as well. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it, it, it is important to note that although we were very disappointed thoroughly mm. with... Uh, the Invisible Man. I think she was not one of the problems with that film. No, certainly not. Um, which is why it's like I really want to start seeing her. You know, I've only seen bits and bobs of Handmaiden's Tale, and mm. and there is a lot of a hype around her in that and Mad Men, where she's really built that foundation in uh, TV acting. So bridging her over into film is, um, and she's such a unique appearance. Like she's not conventional looking right like in terms of hollywood-esque and i love that because if anything the last five or six years of of film has really pushed the sort of more non-conventional more human looking people in film i mean you look at like adam driver he's not a convent he's a uh, right he's, he's not he's not um conventionally Hugh jackman or, or a leo dicaprio or exactly. a brad pitt you know yeah. these are more conventional traditional hollywood good-looking boys and you know you got someone like him who's you know, kind of a little too tall and he's kind of a little, uh, you know, he's got a wide frame. He's and got he a bit of a, a gothic sort of vibe to him. He he's could not have been a got a conventional look. And I mean, you know, you, you talk about someone like Daniel Radcliffe, who's definitely not conventional Hollywood pretty at right. all. And, and I, I like the... He's um, British pretty. <laughs> no, I guess you could argue he's British pretty, yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, yeah, someone like Elizabeth Moss is kind of interesting like that because she's got that sort of... Um, naturalism to her appearance and I like the way she performs and she does off and she she's now kind of sort of served between Invisible Man and this film she sort of served both sides of the fence being the menacing one and being the one you know oppressed by the menace yeah Um, she definitely takes like a more victimized role in both of these films but there's way more complexity to her role in, in this film. Absolutely. And of, of course, as she the doesn't, titular she's title. She's not but... just a final girl, like, like in, in Wenell's Invisible Man, where she's mm. nothing more than really just a woman that gets gradually and more unstable because no one's listening to her and circumstance kind of forces her down that route rather than the story. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because we talk about, like, she's definitely not the problem with the Invisible Man that we had. No. Um, but I, I can't remember if I even said this on the podcast. I hope it did, for consistency's sake. Yeah, no. <laughs> so I don't sound like I'm going back and forth. I think she was good, but not great in that film. 
and I don't blame her at all for that. But like, even even like her monologue when she's talking about her ex boyfriend, I was just like, I don't know, there's something about it I didn't buy. But in this film, I was like, she's really excellent in this film. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, if we go back to Invisible Man, Winnell's strength wasn't his writing in in Upgrade. It wasn't that wasn't the part of the, right. the film that was what people enjoyed and really liked. And we really both really liked Upgrade, and mm. and Jack really liked Upgrade. Um, and it's, but it's not the writing that draws me to that. It was the way the action was shot. It was the, the unique premise, you know, it it didn't have, it wasn't a strong drama piece. And I really showed uh, all of the, the blemishes that were in upgrade really got emphasized, you know, know, emphasized and, uh, showcased, especially in Invisible Mm. Man. Yeah, I I think in that scenario, it's just sort of the... I don't want to say the wrong director, because there is a lot of clever scenes in Invisible Man, but you're right, the fact that he brought in those upgrade-esque action scenes was like one of the really big problems with mm-hmm. that film. So, again, definitely not Elizabeth Moss's fault or anything like that, but I, I just love that. And even to what you were saying, not even just like sort of a more unique aspect of beauty that she brings to it. I mean, this film, she's... Uh, her character, rather, Shirley, has a lot of sort of issues she's smoking a lot and in bed a lot so she doesn't look very pretty this whole film as well but i i just love that they didn't cast someone more obvious like i i said to you tony collette i could kate, totally and, see and if, it got, and if it was a bigger mm. film kate blanchett yeah exactly could, like, i could see either of them doing it i'm glad it wasn't i'm glad it was elizabeth Moxon yeah, said absolutely and i i there it's hard not to appreciate the fact that um although yeah she's she doesn't, uh, a lot of the time she's framed as this sort of, well, this psychological mess. Mm. Um, there is sort of a car crash aura she has where, uh, particularly the uh, a young woman who, uh, Rosie. Rose, yeah. Or Rose. Um, Either way, I think they call her both Rose yeah, and Rosie. who was, uh, you know, staying under the guise of them and who was originally spooked and horrified her becomes... Uh, mesmerized and even attracted towards her. Mm. And I mean, it, although it's fair to say that there's a good chance that um, Martin Scorsese, who's the EP behind this work, probably didn't have too much creative uh, influence or control. No, for sure. I can see why, I said this to you when we left the yep. cinema, I could see him picking up this script and reading this script and liking it because I think it has a lot of parallels to... Uh, the short that he directed in that anthology film. Oh, the New York stories. The New York stories. Um, I'm trying to remember if, like his section because it was like a 40 minute short within a film of three shorts. I'm trying to remember what his was called. I think it was called The Artist. I, I think you're right. Um, I think it was The Artist, yeah. And that starred Nick Nolte, um, very young Nick Nolte. Um, <laughs> and it, it sort of had this same sort of cyclical uh, level of abuse between an artist and the subject. Yeah. Uh, in which I think this film is influenced by, or not derivative, but influenced. Um, and I think that that's interesting because I really think that Shirley, there's a lot of toxicity and manipulation between the dynamic of all four of the characters. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's fair to say that although on the surface she surely appears to be the most unstable and with reasoning, of course, mm. she definitely validates that. 
there's almost a level of psychological torment and abuse she puts herself through for the the prize of good art good mm. good horror art which is something of wasn't of the time which is it's amazing you know it, yeah I mean, I think it comes back to the opening scene when Rose is, is sitting on the train with uh, Fred, I believe it is. Fred, yeah. Exactly. Um, and she's reading the lottery and he asks her how it is and she's like, it's terribly good. Or yeah, like horrifically am- like amazing. Amazing. That's just like, that contradiction of like, it makes me feel horrible, but it's great art. Yes. And, you know, it's really interesting the sort of dynamic that all four characters have. Um mm. Particularly, uh, I would say, Stanley, um, who's Shirley's partner. Yep. Shirley and, of course, Rosie are the three real strong pillars. And I would I would even throw Fred in there because there is definitely an importance of having all four of them. Yeah, I think the four, the symmetry between the four is so interesting. And I'll get to why in a minute, but you finish your point, yeah. Yeah, well, was me finishing my point. Oh, well, <laughs> well there you go. Well, that, that's the thing that I... Because, again, there's, there's a lot of... Inter- we talked about Jordan Peele, and it does feel, especially with the music and the way it's the handheld camera, the way they even speak sometimes, it feels like there's a lot of double entendres for something almost supernatural. And it, it, it's a while into the film when you sort of... And, again, this is us just listening, not even really watching the trailer, just listening to the audio so we could put it in last week's podcast and reading the logline, having so little information about it. And then the first half of the film, or really most of the film, having this interesting handheld effect and the way characters talk to each other, it does feel like it's building to a horror film. I think there's not... I'm trying to think. Outside, after a certain point, I don't think there's tripod shots anymore. I don't think there is at all. Um, There might be... I mean, there's one shot at the end involving a cliff. No, I think that's handheld too, now I think about it, yeah. Because I was watching the edges of the corner, I was like, this isn't steady cam. this is definitely handheld. Mm. Like, there's such an un unhinged feeling to that and like even yeah. there's a discussion they have early on where Shirley's sort of talking about Rose's pregnancy and again there's a bit of a supernatural aura to that it's like oh well, how does she know she's pregnant is it some sort of gift she has and Birdman plays with that similar theme if you go into that film blind which I did back in 2015 I think I saw it in 2015 well I mean we drew a comparison to that mm. too there was definitely some of that element in there I mean I, I was more drawing it towards uh, the price for good art, but mm. you're correct. There are definitely, of course, there's supernatural, psychological, psycho, uh, as yeah, you know, psychological uh, thriller esque tropes in there. It feels like it thematically, and that's why it was so weird when we got to the end of the film, and there was so little of that, and a, a lot of the surreal photography you can attribute to the fact that it's it's in her head as she's writing this novel about mm. this girl. And it was it was a bit of a jarring surprise to me because I was like, oh, it feels like there's a lot of junk in this film that I have to weave through to get to the message. And I don't, I, I think that's putting it harshly. I don't think it's like wasted junk or anything like that. Yeah. I actually have, a, doing a bit of research this morning, I have a theory why the film does this um, in relation to Shirley Jackson as a writer. But ultimately what I came to, and I think you put this very clearly, so I'm going to sound smarter than I was Friday night because I'm using some of the words you used to clear my thoughts but it very much is the what fuels art and it's all about what fuels the art that shirley jackson creates and you it usually comes from rose but there's also a bit of it that comes from stanley even Mm -hmm. though i took i took his character way more as a negative reinforcement to her creativity and the fueling of her art but it's ultimately the critic and the artist are married to each other and the couple that come in is the the wannabe critic and the wannabe artists yeah 
And that's sort of the dynamic right there. Yeah, I, I, I think it comes back to... Um, I think every one of them, all three of them, to certain extents, uh, surrounding Shirley, motivate mm. elements of the text she's writing. Yeah. Uh, Stanley is constantly... Uh, pressing to read the pages yet never actually goes out and does it himself mm. um, which is really intriguing because it's like you know you would think most you know play by play plots would be like oh, I want to read that and then she goes no and then eventually he goes well I'm not yeah. going to ask for your permission he storms in and takes the pages mm -hmm. and when you pointed that out that that scene doesn't exist it really shifted my perspective on Stanley yeah because I saw he... him as he's over nurturing is actually diminishing Shirley's ability to write, but then you point out stuff like that where it's like it's a little more it's a little more complicated. Yeah, I, I think it's he, I mean it comes back to uh, you know, she missing dinner and he comes in with two whiskeys. Mm. You know, he's working the angle that he wants to see the pages, but as soon as she throws a shoe at him, he immediately <laughs> recluses and waits for her to gesture him over. Yeah. Like a waiter. And, you know, he come goes, Well, you need to come out because I feel like i need a wife to represent me and it's sort of that mutual thing and it's pretty clear that for the most part um shirley's well aware stanley's having an affair with the dean's wife mm. and is constantly sexually harassing or you know pressing into to rose and other compatriots and kind of playing it off as this fun kind of kooky person um but at the same time that, that manipulation of emotion that you think at first Stanley is manipulating Shirley into just producing art so he has this genius, it goes both ways. As, yep. as Stanley comes in once after Fred's pestering to get his dissertation looked at and he's talking yeah. about how entitled he is, Shirley fully manipulates the situation in order mm. to get Stanley to give Fred the promotion. But in turn, Fred just looks kind of adequate like a discount version of stanley yeah he has i mean it's one of the best it's one of the best lines in the film was but, uh, even yeah the scene when we see fred actually host his own lecture and it's it's almost a a kind of crappy carbon copy of what stanley does and the way he describes it it's like a kid playing an adult yeah basically someone who's not ready to to do this because yeah. because stanley's right in a way like this kid he sort of wiggled his way into this home and, you know, they're partly to blame as well for inviting the, the couple into the home, but he's sort of wiggled his way into the ranks and Stanley's annoyed. He's like, no, you didn't do the hard lines. He won't yeah. say it to his face, not necessarily. He would say it to Shirley, but I, yeah. I do like that element there. Yeah, well. there's, a, there's a lot going on there. And um, characters don't just develop one singular feeling towards each other. They mm. develop a complex array of, of emotions towards one another because... You know, not a scene or two later, you know, Shirley is, to an extent, you know, sexually making moves towards Rose. Yeah. And Rose is reciprocating. So, it, there's a complex array of emotions where, like, each character is, is doing different things. And I find that really intriguing um, character-wise. There's four really strong characters, and it, it really is summarised that this is not just about Shirley and Rose. Mm. It's about all four of them at when the end comes in and they play off all four of the actors' names, you know, and then say in Shirley, like it's a playbill. Right, yeah. It, but the film 
and not even in the advertisement. It might in the advertisement. We didn't really watch the trailers no, or pay attention. Very but much just in the f- yeah, Moss, yeah. With, but within the film, you're right. When you get to the credits, it it distinctly shows all four names. I think in different title cards, and then you're right in Shirley. So it's sort of, you know, I mean, I've been I've been rewatching the Breakfast Club recently. I guess I should have mentioned that first half of the show. It doesn't really matter, but. You know, that's when we, you like, the, the performances of each individual character is so important in that film. And it, it, the way the film treats it in here, it's the same. All four are so integral to the story, and the film recognizes that. And so I, I really like that. that. Yeah. So that's that's definitely one of the huge, huge takeaways. Um, I'll be intrigued to see what you mean by this, this clutter. Um, okay. Well, I, I've, now's a good time to get into it, I guess. Yeah, because... Yeah, um, so, I mean, we talked about Jordan Peele. I mean, we made some other comparisons as well, but again, the film, very stylistically, the way, oh, I say it again, the editing, the way it's shot, and the the scene for me as well, and we talk about like, oh, Shirley sort of has this weird magical knowledge of, of Rose's pregnancy and sort of, oh, she always answers like, the, which gender is it? She's always right sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And later in that same scene as, as Rose and, and Fred, they sort of storm off quite upset because of the abruptness of it there's a phone going off in the background. And again, this is all sort of attributing to this idea that, oh, this is going to be sort of a tense psychological mm-hmm. horror. Even the phone just constantly ringing. And there's almost a, there's this weird conversation that, that Shirley and Stanley have like, oh, are you going to take care of that? You promised you would take care of that. And then as soon as Stanley says, I will or fine or whatever the line is, the phone stops. And it, it's like this, all this stuff feels very supernatural. And it felt like a lot of junk because we, we're talking about the character dynamics and, the artist versus the critic and that's like that's all really great and it's like i don't know why all these elements in the, in terms of the filmmaking are suggesting a genre that this frankly isn't being now that said it definitely feels more interesting to watch it's this stuff is for sure while the why the director got the auteur sort of award is definitely for these elements and my theory i found this uh, doing a little research in this my theory is that uh, one of the early books that she did, and I'm talking about Shirley Jackson, was mm-hmm. called The Bird's Nest. And apparently there was a dispute with the publishing house marketed it as a psychological horror story, this book. And apparently Shirley was very upset about this. Okay. So I thought maybe that was a weird nod to that, the fact that it was, that book was marketed as a psychological horror when it wasn't necessarily one, at least from what I'm reading. I haven't read the book, of course. It just has some darker... Th- thematities to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think all of her work is like a good. Well. Uh, it's probably an astute observation and a, mm. and probably a at least the best guess of a correla- correlative uh, sort of. Yeah, that's point. that's that's all the main thing I could find in terms of. No, I, I think that's a fair that's a fair bump. Um, like <laughs> fair bump, fair bump, play on. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, I I think there's definitely a subversion of expectation in that for sure. Yeah. Um, and um, it really, after a certain point, you sort of like, no, it's not going to kick into those gears, like those horror gears. And you mm. sort of just, move, it moves back into sort of more a psychological drama would probably yeah. be the actual accurate. For, yeah, for sure. For this, uh, this subgenre. Um, and yeah, no, I, I find that really interesting that there's that sort of um, intertextuality that you mm. could draw to it. So... Yeah, I think that would make total sense to me. And like I said, I think it's the film's definitely more interesting for having done, made these decisions, and we can talk about the ending a little bit because I was I wasn't confused by the ending, but it definitely, it's not like the film just drops these sort of 
I guess, thematic element. I mean, it's it's all the conventions of the horror genre, but yeah. it's like the narrative itself isn't really horror. And there's there's two really distinct endings here, and, and I think the first one, which is to do with, with Rose and Shirley off the mountain cliff, the way that's edited is very surreal, and it's it's quite not de- not definitive. Uh, like, I wasn't sure if Rose like jumped off the cliff at the mm. end or why oh she's it sort of cuts between her going it's, back into the car it's definitely emphasize i mean that scene is definitely shot not from rose's perspective it's shot from shirley's perspective right and the ambiguity of what might have happened is sort of left up to the subjectivity of what shirley sees which yep. is by proximity what we see and i mean we see multiple surreal scenes involving shirley and we think some kind of visions there there be psychs, you know, psychic mm-hmm. visions, or they're just surreal experiences that sort of this uh, kind of sickly, mentally sickly woman is enduring. Um, and so there is that ambiguity there of whether, I mean, Rose was there, Rose wasn't there, or um, whether that resolution with her driving away with Fred. Mm. Uh, ever be the same and if anything i i attribute that that rose uh ending with um almost like a uh, psychological parallel of the dynamic mm. that's uh stanley and uh shirley have in the sense that um you know here's this man who uh roses even though she knows he's actively cheating on her is going to stay with her um, although their rela- relationship will never be the same again. So, do I we think... know how much time passed when they were at this house? Was it uh, at least a it, year? It well, would have had to be at least a year because of the kid. The baby, yeah, you're correct. Because the baby's born. Yeah. We see the baby born. The baby's a, an infant by the time yeah. the end of the film. So, at least a year. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Because you're right. There's such a. I mean, they're newlyweds, and, and that was in the log line I read somewhere. So, I knew going in the film they were newlyweds, but it is well demonstrated when she's reading the lottery yep. and they, they just start having sex on the train. Like you get that vibe that they're like a young couple. They just got married. Their lives are beginning in a way. So I, I liked that it, it's infinitely changed by them staying with the, with the Jackson household, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think now that, now that I know that they're fictitious, like the, the film created these couple, or at least the book that this is based on, like, which sort of makes the correlation between mm. both relationships a little bit more, uh, I would at the forefront because yeah. obviously with them being fictitious, it means that thematically you can get them to do really whatever you want. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you can have more fun with the, what happened like with Shirley. It's like to accurately de- uh, display her, you have to show her in ruins and barely getting out of uh, bed and constantly smoking. And yeah, you have to show that because that's the reality. I'm of not it. sure at any point in time. And I'm more than happy to accept if I'm wrong on this, because mm. I didn't check a lot of the historical context. But I didn't think Shirley uh, is 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 bisexual yet. In this film, she expresses you know right. same gender sexual intimacies towards Rose and Rose. Well, she almost doesn't know what to do, and I definitely think that this makes her action, uh, her sexual uh, advances on Rose in mm. in not even the entirety of the film, just a period of the film. Uh, seem all the more um, manipulative 
and yeah. directly uh, correlating to the benefit of her work rather than the individual, which, especially in contrast to Portrait last last yeah, week, last week, where both characters were not of using the, each other. Yeah, they're very much fueled by the love for each other, and yeah. that's represented in the art. But in this film, you're right, there's way more manipulation going on. Yeah, which is why I would even draw the parallels of of when I say Scorsese and that Nick Nolte short, because Mm. that's what Nick Nolte's character does. He uses this woman as an artistic assistant, as a sexual release, um, and a foundation for heartbreak to influence his work. And then immediately, once her usefulness has ended and she's gone, he finds a replacement. And the cycle begins again. Yeah. Man, I you know, I would love to rewatch the show because I I forgot that that's how it ends, and you were completely right. He does find like a new yeah. subject, which is actually weirdly similar to a short I wrote about a painter. But <laughs> ignore mm. ignore any of that. Um, what I love is that Rose is sort of complicit. First off, she's very interested in the novel that's being written. She's the one. She's the one that does sneak in and mm. read pages, not so much Stanley. Well, she expresses the viewpoint of. Uh of us mostly mm. she's probably the closest to a audience embodiment character because she she is the one who sees this car crash of a woman in shirley yeah but still constantly takes care of her and becomes to admire her quite greatly both from a creative and then even from potentially a romantic point of view well yeah from that very first scene we know she's infatuated about her work at least yes and then there's that jarring first couple of days when like oh she's kind of a bitch to her yeah and then, obviously, you're right, the relation becomes very muddled and more complicated from that point on. And even from the sexual angle, I mean, you can compare it to the fact that Stanley was also making plenty of sexual weird advances on Rose throughout her entire stay. Yeah, and Rose even was ki- thoroughly yeah. re- rejecting them Absolutely. every single time. Even the kiss, which does happen. He does sneak one in at one point. It's he really does. awkward, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an awkward scene. Um, whereas, in contrast, everything she does towards Shirley... Mm is is way more self-aware way uh is almost to do with the you know mesmerizing nature of this woman who on the surface to most people see is seen as an outsider and Mm. a basket case but she is also rosie is also the first one to defend her and and becomes quite infatuated with her creative process and the type of person she is because she's in you know Shiat is sort of, at least on the surface, according to, I think, the eyes of Rosie, this person that, mm. although broken, it's all on the surface. There's no agenda. Yeah. And I, I love that you point out that she is in defense of her because, like, when she goes, when Rose goes to the university to, I guess, dig up some information about this subject that yeah. Shirley wants, she's very defensive. Like, no, she's actually working every day and she's doing this. And then yeah. usually the comments are, oh, well, you know, her husband told me this. So there's almost that weird juxtaposition with a husband, Stanley, he's the one that sort of wants to paint this picture that his wife is, you know, not necessarily lazy, but just so incompetent and unable to write and work because she's in bed all day. Mm-hmm. And uh, So, yeah, it's cool to see Rose, again, becoming the fuel for that creativity. She's on the defense. She's the one protecting Shirley or protecting yeah, the vision and be like, no, she is working. She's working very hard, actually. So, yeah, no, I like worries. that dynamic. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, the only other thing I've written... Is and again, this goes into your point. You're talking about how some of the intertextuality of of Shirley's work finds its way into this film. Another thing that I've read, and again, I'm not really too familiar with her written work, but apparently the idea of the doppelganger is very common in Shirley's work. 
mm-hmm. which again that kind of goes into the fact that they would have a very doppelganger s couple like the younger yeah. version of them come into the house and that's the basis of this sort of fictitious story that we're getting well so, even her yeah. like uh bait and switch replacements of mm. the girl who actually went missing with with her uh, with, with rose's face yeah, yeah. absolutely so no, i i can i can agree to that um yeah. yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think we can get in the highlight scenes. No worries. I would say my highlight scene is that dinner table scene where Stanley lays the smackdown on <laughs> Fred. On Fred. <laughs> I think that's one of down. that's one of the best wittiest lines I've ever heard a pompous tool say <laughs> in film. <laughs> the art uh, critic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, uh, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. After sort of Shirley sways Stanley into letting Fred uh, teach and yep. uh, looking into the dissertation, um, and we can see we see that play out. Um, eventually, we see that the euphoric state that Stanley is in is not because he's actually happy for Fred, but because he looked like a bit of a tosser uh, right. and was absolutely not on the same level of entertaining oh. and engaging. Uh, yeah, uh, Tudor. I didn't even think about that. The reason he's so happy and dancing with everyone, I just thought that he was just being a dick, like hiding the fact. Now, you, the way you say it, it makes me feel like he's actually dancing because of how mediocre he was. Yeah, because it makes him, it validates yeah. what he'd been saying the whole time. This person, although not I bad, wonder. was not on the same uh, yeah. level of engagement or well, mesmer. Sorry, yeah. No, just the fact that his emotion is... That was an accurate, authentic emotion that he was like happy and dancing around. He's lying. He's like, oh, he was amazing. He was spectacular. But the emotion is authentic. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And then it leads to, yeah, the um, sort of discussion of his mm. work being nothing more than derivative. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like when he said deli- the, de- 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 derivative. You just look at me, you're like, ooh, we know what that means. (laughs) And it just comes back to after Fred leaves the table, Rosie quickly follows. Shirley kind of slightly criticizes Stanley, goes, oh, was it really that bad? And he's like, it would have been better if it was awful because there's no... It would have been, like, enjoyable. There's no forgiveness for something that's perfectly adequate. (laughs) And I was just like, that's exactly it right there. That's the stuff. (laughs) Um, that's such a critic thing to say as well is you would rather a heap of mess than a perfectly adequate but such it's, and in, such. if anything it captures the metaphor of even Shirley's writing you know mm. or the, the situation where it's like you know he will accept no less than adequate uh, no less than perfection right you know and I, I did compare after the film that I feel like Stanley's character does have uh, certain uh elements that is present in jk simmons uh on oh, whiplash in character in whiplash you know this guy who he knows he's actually not capable of the brilliance of art right. but he's willing to criticize and really drag the people that are capable of this brilliance through hell and back in mm. order to get that brilliance to emerge out and i mean that's really made apparent by the final scene i was just about to talk about that final scene because you're right it I, I didn't know how to take this part of the ending because this is the final scene. This is where the credits even roll over. Is uh, Stanley reading the, I guess, the first full manuscript and he's blown away by it. And it seems authentic. He authentically is blown away by it. He's like, yeah. this is this is your masterpiece. And then they dance and she's very happy. And I was 
I thought that was an interesting note to end it on that she sort of gets the validation from her husband. But the validations, it always comes back to, it's sort of a, they share a symbiotic relationship with one another mm. rather than an actual relationship. They need each other, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're healthy yep. for each other. So Absolutely. I think that's the, the difference. So yeah, I, I liked the ending. I thought it was, it really did uh, some, you know, summarize the, the main thing I drew from it, which mm. is the, the price for art. You know, as we see that whole shot, it's all shot from her point of view, sitting at the table nervously waiting as we just see Stanley Right, because we don't emerge. know what he's doing at that point. No, he's just sitting in the background. Yeah. Out of focus. Um, so her nervous wreck at the table, she's sort of clawing. She's not even looking back because she's too scared to even look back. Yeah. You um, imagine she was sitting there for a long time as well if he's reading this whole thing yeah. from start to back. Yeah. So yeah. I, I find, I would say that that, Smackdown was my favorite <laughs> favorite part of the film. Well, I love I love that we've gone from the Smackdown to the ending to what would be my highlight scene now because it it all sort of fits under the same umbrella theme. Yeah. Uh, of again the art and the and the critic and where does that parallel sort of come together or where does that relationship meet? My favorite scene and you mentioned a little bit when he walks in with the the whiskey glasses and she throws the shoe at him. Yes. Uh, my that would probably be my highlight scene because what that discussion entails is, again, he hasn't read anything, but he starts sort of going off at her. He's pointing at the pictures on the wall. You know, this isn't you. You don't know this person. I barely knew this person. And we, we come to learn that that's a bit of a lie. He actually did know this woman quite well, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but he gets in that rant of, like, why are you writing this? This isn't you. You don't know what you're doing sort of thing. And I guess he's saying that from, from a, a critiquing point of view as someone mm-hmm. who's only looking for the art that is great, that is objectively great in his eyes. And her response is, no, I understand what these women have gone through. I completely understand. I am these women, and this is why I have to write this thing. And what I loved about it is the underlying idea of, again, him as a critic looking for the objective good art while she's kind of rooted into the, of what art truly yeah. is. And like, this is how I relate to it as an artist, as someone who's writing this thing. I'm not trying to write something good. I'm trying to write something that I feel so passionate about. And I love that debate. It was just, it was really clean. It was a great scene. And I'm, I'm trying to remember how much, if it was like in one take or not. I don't think it was, but... No, it was um, It was definitely edited quite subtly where the conversation just rolls out and the argument just takes place. And we're, we're flies on the wall, as we always like to say on the show. Yeah, so. no worries. That would be my highlight scene. Well, Shirley is currently out in wide release uh, in yeah. cinemas. Cinemas. Look, so. I... I don't know if Hoyts have it, but you can definitely go to like Luna and yeah, your smaller independent theaters. Yeah, I also think it's out on. Oh god, I hate. I'm not going to say this because actually, you know what? I can just go and watch. Just watch. I feel like it's out on one streaming service. I might be thinking of the film we're going to be doing next week, but I'm just going to quickly spicy check on. I know a little little tease for two minutes in the future. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to do a quick little search yeah, like a little for drum roll, little drum roll from from Jackie Boy. All right, Shirley on the Just Watch app. Oh, it's actually funny. It's actually got the um, session times, although it's saying in Berlin. I don't want to watch this film in Berlin. I want to watch it in Perth, Australia. Uh, Apparently, this film has no streaming option. So, yes, you're going to have to go to a cinema near you to watch this film. Exciting times. Well, there you go. Moving into what is new in streaming platforms slash cinemas. Slash cinemas. All right. This is a bit of a, a shorter week. So, if you want to go on to Netflix this week, you've got The Beach Bum. 
which starts Snoop Dogg and Matthew McConaughey. That's a interesting duo right there. It's a very interesting duo. <laughs> and you've also got... A lot of weed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Very much the beach bum, for sure. And you've also got Cursed, which is the retelling of the Arfarian legend teenage sorceress uh, Nemu, who's played by none other than our purfling Kathleen Langford. On stand this week, you've got 12 Years a Slave or the Hunger Games films, the Prison Break uh, mini series from 2016. So it's sort of, it's sort of a sequel to the rest of the show, which mm-hmm. I still haven't watched. I love Prison Break. I never watched that 2016 series. Uh, you've also got the Spiderwick Chronicles and the 1983 film The Piano, which is a film I was meant to wow. watch. I was meant to watch that last year when we did Screen Fury. I never got to it, but that's all right. I also have not seen it. Ah, that's okay. Well, it's on stand this week, if you please. Uh, on Disney Plus this week, a lot of shows, are, you know, their weekly episodes are coming through, but the standout for me was the 1955's The Pre-Opening Report from Disneyland. And the reason I talk about these, like, 70-plus-year-old film-slash-episode series, whatever, is this, it's cool archival footage. So yeah. this is stuff that came out, like, within the weeks of Disneyland opening. Which is always that's pretty uh, insane. It's yeah, it's fascinating. So that's why I'm always talking about random 40s, 50s stuff. Don't go to Disneyland right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Watch this show, <laughs> or do not go to the actual place. <laughs> uh, now, in cinemas, it's a little lighter this week. Uh, if you're looking for some fun, much like uh, last night, there was an interactive screening for the room at Luna. Mm-hmm. This Friday, they are starting their interactive screenings for Cats. So uh, that's coming this Friday if you want to go to that. See, when I saw Cats with Perry, and we talked about this on episode 62, mm-hmm. uh, we, we saw it with a crowd that authentically liked the film, so we couldn't really... That's horrifying. I know, we couldn't sing or laugh or... Every aspect of that. That's I know, horrifying. we couldn't do anything. It, was, it sucked. So uh, if you do want to go and laugh at this film, uh, you can go to Luna this Friday. I think they're doing Rocky Horror Picture Show a week or two from now, but of course I'll talk about that on this show when the time is appropriate. There is one other film, or one new film, coming to cinemas this week. And Zeke, I think we're doing this as our next film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> next week on the show, we're watching The King of Staten Island. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Don't be, it's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. A semi-autobiographical comedy drama about Pete Davidson growing up in Staten Island, including losing his father during 9-11 and entering the world of stand-up comedy. Oh, sounds like a time. This is the latest from Jub Apatow. Now, here's the thing. I've heard that this is his best film, the best film of his career, and I saw the trailer last night, finally, because I've heard Jack talk about this film a lot. I've heard you mention this film. Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, this looks really good. So I'm really keen. I'm intrigued. So, yeah, so, I think it comes out this Thursday in cinema, so if you want to keep up with the conversation, you should go, you should try and catch it this weekend, everybody. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. And I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The King of Staten Island. Don't call me Shirley. Shirley. Shirley, Shirley. Shirley.